Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and I am joined by Blister reviewers Dylan Wood and Simon Stewart to talk about a whole bunch of the stuff we've been testing of late, including the Comensal Tempo and Rebel Ranger on the shorter travel side of things, Simon's time on the Orbea Wild E-Enduro bike, and Dylan and Simon both weigh in on the new SRAM transmission that they have both been getting time on. I've spoken my piece on it a bit earlier, and we'll have a full review of that up fairly soon here, but check that out. And we've also got a lot of suspension to talk about because I've been testing both the EXT Aria and the latest iteration of the Era Fork. Simon and I weigh in on the Olin's TTX-1 and TTX-2 air shocks that we'll have a full review of up very soon. And I weigh in with my initial impressions of the new Manitou Matic Pro as well. So there's a lot in here. It's going to be fun. And let's get right to my conversation with Simon Stewart and Dylan Wood. Well, Dylan, Simon, great to sit down and chat about bikes here with you guys as always and we got a good bit to cover here so guess we'll sort of kick it off with some of the shorter travel bikes that we've all been getting time on of late and simon why don't you lead things off with the comensal tempo absolutely thanks thanks david yeah the tempo now i've got quite a few rides on and um I'm getting along really well with it. Um, this is a bike and we have the flash review up for those of you out there that haven't seen that yet. Um, and it kind of goes into my initial impressions on it. Um, they're all exceedingly good. I, I really like this travel. Um, I like 140, 125. Uh, Dylan, you're going to be getting this bike next and it's going to be really good to hear your impressions since you're coming off the Rebel Ranger, which is um, a shorter travel bike. It's a 120, 115 bike. So... And when I'm on those shorter travel bikes, I do feel like in this area, uh, particularly that it's a little undergunned sometimes and a little bit more fork would be nice. While as the tempo comes, you know, out of the box with 140, 125, which I think is the sweet spot for a short travel bike. Which is to say a 140 fork on a 125 rear travel bike. Yeah, exactly. So uh, really uh, the whole balance of the bike, you know, I, I did sort of mention it's a little a little heavier for um, what we usually see in this category, but I'm not really feeling that on the trail right now. And that is a testament to the suspension efficiency. So thumbs up there for sure. And to be clear, I haven't got up in the high country yet. We know when the air gets thin, you actually, you do feel the weight on a bike a lot more at 10,000 feet, strangely, right? <laughs> so uh, once, you know, we got a lot of snow this, this winter. Great. Trails are running really well right now. Um, however, it's going to be a little bit delayed till we can get up into that high country to really put this sort of shorter travel bike through its paces. Uh, I think it's going to do well. I, you know, I'm not really, it's not, um, it's not snappy. It's not, that's not its nature at all. Um, it doesn't feel slow either, but it doesn't have that quickness of a lighter bike or, or a carbon bike for that matter. Um, cause we're working with alloy here. Yeah. And so I guess where would you sort of situate it then as far as what it compares to what sort of rider is going to be most sort of in its wheelhouse and what are the kind of trade-offs you're seeing with it? Cause it sounds like you are really liking it, but it's perhaps a bit of a different take on a 125 travel bike than most. Yes, I think so. I think, gosh, it's so it's so fun. So, uh, you know, like we talked about in the flash review, the angles aren't, sorry, the geometry isn't the last word in progressiveness. So they didn't go as long as they could as slack and, you know, uh, steep in the seat tube angle. They kept it kind of a little bit reserved in that department. And I think that is to its credit because it really does feel balanced. Um, and it's incredibly fun to ride. I also mentioned how quiet it was. So that's still happening. <laughs> uh, that headset uh, cable routing working really well. And whatever else the routing is throughout the bike and their suspension, everything is dead silent so far, and as well as the chain uh, stay protection. And that's that feels notable too, because internally routed aluminum bikes can often be pretty rattly. They tend not to have in tube riding or anything like that and so maybe Coleman's also done a good job with the foam dampers around that hoses and housing and what have you but uh that is 
for sure often an issue on aluminum internally righted bikes in particular. So I guess good on them for having worked something out there. Yeah, that that was a surprise to me as well. I was like, wow, this thing is really, really quiet. And I do intend to take a peek in there, of course, just to kind of get a better look at the internal routing of the through the headset, but also to see what they've done in there uh, to keep the rest of it quiet because it's, it's remarkably quiet. Well, that sounds all real positive. And Dylan, it'll be cool to get your follow-on take here when you get some time on it coming up shortly. So stay tuned for that, everyone. I'd say I didn't really answer your question as like, where does it sit and who's it for? And I think it's going <laughs> to take true. a little Let's bit. Let's get back to that. <laughs> well, it's going to take a little bit more time to distill that because it is an, a unique bike in, in many different regards. So uh, it's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, I was going to say my first impression, who is it suited for? It's suited for like a aggressive trail rider um, straight up. I mean, the way that this thing rides, it just pushes you and it entices you to take gnarlier lines than the travel would indicate. So as it stands now, that's where I'm going to slot it in. It's in kind of its own little um, category, I think, almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like there aren't a bunch of other bikes in that range, too. Like, there's the Canyon Spectral 125 that I just reviewed. Exact same travel numbers, a little bit more aggressive geometry on paper, but similar kind of concept. And then stuff like the um, Gorilla Gravity Trail Pistol that we reviewed a while back, and uh, the new Chromag Darko that I am actually supposed to be getting on pretty soon here. Uh, a little bit TBD on exactly when, but sometime in the nearish future, um, so on and so forth. So that's a 125, 150 fork. So even taking oh, the yeah. over forking uh, <laughs> a step further, but and we should compare it to the Smuggler as well that you've recently been on. Yep, 100. percent Good note. Yeah, there are you know a solid number of these kind of 125, 130-ish rear travel aggressive trail bikes out there, and been on a bunch of them, and they can be a ton of fun. So cool to hear that comments all got their take on the genre pretty well sorted out too and so i guess that kind of brings us to next bike on the list here which dylan you've been spending time on the revel ranger as simon said and similar ish rear travel numbers but a bit less fork and definitely a more xc oriented bike in general which i guess also you were doing some racing on that a few weeks ago as well so tell us about the bike about the growler all it yeah yeah so it's the Revel Ranger, and I would agree that this bike uh, sort of feels like a step down from bikes like the Tempo and other bikes that I've been on, like the Pivot Trail 429 or the Niner Jet 9. bit less travel, lighter, um, a little bit more XC-oriented geometry, uh, but still super modern. You know, it's got a 473 mil reach on a large, which is... Uh, a number that I've found myself being really happy with on a bunch of other bikes as well. And immediately, yeah, this is a bike that you get on and you can tell it wants to go fast uphill. Once you get out of the saddle, attack the climbs, um, super efficient bike. The RockShox SID rear shock has a pretty aggressive um, lockout tune. So you, you know, flip that thing on and it, you know, feels really stiff and like you're really not losing much uh, efficiency there. Uh, whereas when it's open, it does feel really efficient too, but it also provides good bit of traction on those technical sections. And I really think they nailed it there with that balance of leaving it open when you're, you know, climbing up single track and locking that thing out when you're on roads, like you'll find yourself on when you're, you know, riding long XC rides on a bike like that. So I think they really nailed it with with that rear shock and, and allowing the dual duality of that to, you know, fit the bike really well. Um, as far as the downhill goes, I, I think it's a really capable bike, um, that the steeper head tube angle, um, it's like 67 and a half degrees, which is, you know, you know, if we're looking in the bike industry in the last 10 years, you know, that's not a crazy number, but just, find myself spending time on bikes with head angles more between like 64 and 66. So it did take a little bit of adjusting to just being a little bit quicker steering in those corners. Um, but has never felt twitchy. Uh, like I said, that long reach, you can kind of just settle between the wheels there and, and rest on the downhills and recover, which is super nice. Um, I found that, 
yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't sketchy at all on, on downhills. You know, it's, it's definitely a step below bikes like the trail 429 and jet nine. That it's, it is a little bit harsher and I don't think it's traction under braking is good. You have to be more deliberate with the braking for sure. Um, but you know, in the context of like a slightly more aggressive XC bike, I think the way that it performs on the downhill, um, is just really lets you, you know, rest, recover, get ready for that next climb, um, or just attack the downhill if you want to. And, and I find myself, you know, taking all the same lines on that bike as I would any other bike that I take out to, to Hartman's as well. So yeah, it's real good. And as you mentioned, I did do an XC race on it. My first XC race in like six years, I think. And I opted for some slightly faster tires. It comes stock with the Maxxis Dissector 2.4 up front and Maxxis Recon 2.4 in the back, which pretty fast rolling, but definitely not something you'd see in a World Cup track. Um, so I opted for it to push the Recon to the front and put a specialized ground control 2.3 in the back just for a little bit more uh, faster rolling. And yeah, the race was great. I, yeah, it's, it's a bike that feels like a lot of your energy is going directly to forward momentum on the uphills, which is exactly what you want. But as I mentioned, I think the race went really well for me. And a lot of that was because I was able to recover so efficiently on the downhill. And part of that is definitely being, you know, a more downhill focused rider as well as knowing those trails really well. Um, but just opening the shocks up, sitting between those wheels, catching my breath on the way down. And yeah, I was able to make a lot of passes like right as the next climb started with all that juice that it saved me. Um, yeah, perfect bike for the growler. I'd say out of Hartman's the right amount of efficiency to capability because that course is pretty loose, um, and pretty rough. So yeah, I think it went great. I'm been really pleased with the Ranger so far. I think it's a great bike for folks looking for the like between XC race and short travel trail kind of in the same universe as like a specialized Epic Evo or a Norco revolver full suspension 120. Um, yeah, great bike so far. We should have a full review coming pretty soon here. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And I guess it's a little bit of an aside, but the note on head tube angle is fun. So I've been put together a first look on, well, I'll say a new version of one of the longer standing free ride bikes on the market. Well, can't say what quite yet. Coming soon. Stay tuned. But uh, was looking back on the earlier iterations and the original version of this bike in question had a 70 and a half degree head tube angle and the new one's down to 62 and a half. So uh Things have changed a little bit in the bike world. It's 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 funny how we um, we sixty seven and a half does feel steep these days, or anything north of sixty six and a half. Honestly, um, I have one ride on on that on a Ranger. Um, uh, Revel popped over here once, and I got on it, and I was like, you know, it just felt like you just wanted to press the pedals as hard as you could because everything that you did transmitted into forward momentum and that is sort of paramount for a bike in that category and i didn't honestly that day didn't really notice that 67 and a half degree head angle it didn't play a big week i was on some pretty twisty trails without some really sustained descents and it was so quick handling that i was having a blast on it you know kind of reminding me how i used to used to ride shorter travel bikes that were really light where you kind of like you're skipping across the top of rocks rather than, you know, absorbing them as much. And you're just, you're, you're hauling ass. And most of it is, is you absorbing the trail as well. So, um, it was just a really fun ride. And I, I would say I'd be into it anytime, but where you're positioning it just like slightly above a cross country race bike and below this sort of shorter travel segment, I think is, is um, spot on. Yeah. Um, right on. And another kind of key thing with the, Ranger Dylan is that you've been testing the SRAM XO transmission on it. And Simon, you've been getting a bunch of time on that on the Yeti SB135. We talked about the SB135 itself last time we did one of these, but didn't touch on transmission quite as much. And so, I mean, I've got a bunch of time on it on some other bikes as well, but I'm curious sort of to hear from you two now and kind of how's that been treating you? What are your thoughts? And I guess, Dylan, why don't you kick this one off? I'm sold. I'm completely sold on 
SRAM transmission. Um, yeah, it's been on the, on the Ranger and I've been going back and forth between, uh, my mega tower, which has GX axis on it. I don't know what we call the old axis now that it's not transmission, but, um, the old system, I suppose. And the transmission is just, it's better in, in every way. Um, most notably is downshifting under load. It's like, it's not even a factor on the transmission. Um, it was super noticeable during the race, um, at Hartman's, there's a bunch of punchy climbs and you'll find yourself four or five gears higher than you want to be. You just have to dump a bunch of gears all at once while, you know, mashing up some rocks and yeah, always smooth. You know, you can just shift whenever you want. I think the improvement in uh, spacing between the cassette, especially at the upper end, at the in the highest gears, is is excellent and really helps you maintain a, cons- a consistent cadence. Which is how I find myself pedaling most of the time, just kind of finding a cadence I like and shifting to accommodate for that as the terrain changes. Um, yeah, I think it's been really great. Really happy with it. Um, with the normal axis, with a derailleur hanger that I have on my enduro bike, you know, I'll crash sometimes and just put a slight bend in my derailleur. And then I'll notice that every single gear is off, um, just by a little bit and then have to go back in there and fine tune. Um, and I haven't been crashing a bunch on the Ranger as much. Um, but I've, it's just been really consistent shifting, uh, throughout my time on it. I basically just um, well, I didn't have to set up, you know, the B limit or the high and low limits, which was super nice. And there was just a couple little fine micro shift tuning that I had to do to get it shifting really well. And since then I, I haven't touched it where I feel like every time that I have a spill on the mega tower and the GX axis, I kind of have to dial in a few gears as my derailleur hanger kind of barely, uh, barely, uh, changed uh it's it's shape there but yeah super positive so far um i'm pretty happy with it yeah i am also quite happy with it uh you know what's interesting is that even though the the installation is definitely simplified but it's different and it's different than any drivetrain you've put on a bike period because the whole procedure is so different than what it was before so i found it actually took me longer to install one the first time because you know i watched the video and then you're looking at all the the nuance of it you're doing all these different steps because it is important to do the steps in the way that is described in the video it's not like installing you just bolt it on run a cable or pair it and set some limit screws it's completely different so I have done, I've installed two of them now. The second one, I just flew through. And that's the difference, right? Because you don't have to do all these other things. Once you've learned the procedure, then it is, I believe, a better procedure. And it takes a lot of the common mistakes out of the picture. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, it is There's a learning curve simply because it is different. And, you know, you've worked in shops for forever. You've installed a million conventional derailers before. You can do that in your sleep. So I'm not surprised here that the first one took a little figuring out. But I do really think that once you have got your head around it, the new system, the new setup is quicker, easier, and maybe most significantly just more foolproof and doesn't require the same kind of fine tuning of limit screws and B tension and all that kind of stuff. If you aren't a super experienced mechanic who's super good at adjusting a normal derailleur quickly, it's definitely, definitely easier on the new T type stuff. I absolutely agree. You know, one of the more time-consuming steps on the um, previous axis system was chain length because that required you to let the air out of your suspension, take well, take it out of the stand, let it out of the let the air out of the suspension, compress it fully, and then use a toe strap, whatever you're going to do to keep the suspension fully compressed, put it back in the stand, and then do your chain sizing procedure. And now we just basically count some links and remove them. It's great <laughs> simplification. Yeah, and and. It's not uncommon for, you know, the previous generation bikes to come in with incorrectly sized chains because some folks don't do that step. So I, I see they noticed something that was a problem area and remedied it with this new uh, installation process. So love that. Um, as far as how, how it works out on the trail, I, I think the first notable thing that you feel is it, it all seems very solid back there. The whole bike just feels really solid. It's not noisy. It's just like 
feels like it's carved out of solid metal back there. And when you hold one of these derailleurs in your hands, it's it's it feels substantial. It feels heavier and stronger than the previous one, just the way that the full mount is integrated into it. Um, and that transmits to transmits that transmits to how the trail feel just feels really <laughs> feels it feels really precise. Now all the way up, very precise. You know that's kind of a hallmark I think of access in general because we talked about this in our durability study on uh, electromechanical derailleurs is that without having a spring to try and guide the derailleur back and pull cable and housing and index it, we've got electric motors that push it up and push it back down. So in that regard, it just feels incredibly precise. Shifting under load is greatly improved. Um, I would say it's on par now with Shimano's under load shifting, just about, I feel like. Um, I'm still getting a few little cracks and pops out of it when it's really when you're really torquing on it, but that I think is unavoidable. Uh, and I do appreciate the in-between gear between you know the 42 and the 51 now. That's nice. It's, it's Still kind of a jump, as we know, but it's better for sure. Yeah, that was sort of my take on the steps, too, is that the new transmission cassette is definitely an improvement over the old 52-tooth Eagle, especially that had the huge jump between first and second gear. Shimano's are still a little bit tighter at the low end of the cassette, and I think I still like that a little bit better, but SRAM has certainly gone a long way toward improving that, and it's if not 100% to my preference, way, way better than the old one. You know, I think some of the way that they've sort of improved this uh, under load, you know, of course it is X-Sync now on the cassette. So we do have narrow wide through all the cassette cogs. Shift speed is a tiny bit slower. Um, that's not a deal breaker for me at all. I, I never thought it needed to be a, a lot faster, but when you get on it, you notice it kind of right away coming from a previous generation axis. You're like, oh, shift speed's a tiny bit slower, but it's more precise. So there you have it. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this next. I did have a little altercation with one already, which is ironic because I went through the whole durability study and have had four axis derailers and one of them never required a derailleur hanger alignment. And then on my second ride on uh, the transmission, uh, I broke the cage with a very sort of benign strike, but it was you know, it's kind of like doing an ACL or an MCL to your knee where you hit it just right. It didn't feel like it should have been that big of an injury, but I just grazed a rock. But what it did is it pushed the derailleur out instead of pushing it in. So it clipped it clipped a rock in such a way that it shot the derailleur outboard, outboard and it just destroyed the cage. It bent it so far out of alignment, it wasn't repairable um, on the trail. Now, there's, to be clear on this, it's it's really challenging to align a cage in today's you know current twelve speed drivetrains because the cages come out of the box angled outboard already. So if you're trying to figure out exactly where home base on that, it's kind of impossible right now. So limped it home, um, looked at it. I was like, wow, that's really bent. So then I thought I would go through the process of replacing the cage because that's what you know you can do as a consumer because you don't have to buy a new derailleur anymore, which is fantastic. Like the replaceable parts in this derailleur are probably my one of my favorite components to it. So, $146 later, um, and a um, an XO T-type transmission cage arrived, and it quite literally took about a minute to replace. <laughs> you know, disconnect the chain, spin it off, spin it back on. Bob's your uncle. It was that fast, and then the shifting was perfect immediately again. So there you have it. Yeah, I mean. There's a video of me doing a cage swap on one in our first look up on the website. And once the derailleur's off the bike and sitting on the workbench, it takes literally 10 seconds or so. Like, I forget exactly how long the video is, but it's and it, it it's super slick. You just spin the cage off the uh, there's no loose spring or any other parts in it. It's just the whole cage assembly, including the clutch and return spring and the derailleur parallelogram. And that's it. It's super easy really nice if anyone's ever taken a more normal derailleur pivot apart and you always have the spring flying out and a bunch of shit you have to align to get it all to go back together and it's kind of a pain and sram has solved that problem too so pretty slick it's like working on a watch you just like it flies everywhere as soon as you get it on un undone well i will say this on that cage note 
they do reference this in the video that uh, during the installation, it is important actually to verify that the cage is screwed in all the way. Um, on, on my second install, um, th that area was a little bit loose. And so because of the, how easy it is to, to unthread and thread on, you could install a T-type transmission and have that cage not uh, tightened, simply put. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. We'll have a more complete review of that up on the site in a bit here once we all kind of log a little more time on it and continue with the durability testing that Simon has kicked off in fine form. And uh, so stay tuned for that. But yeah, it's fair to say that all three of us have been quite impressed thus far. So good work, SRAM. And well, I guess Simon, might as well throw it back to you here now on a very different sort of bike you've also been riding the orbea wild their big long travel e-bike and tell us about it yeah so um this is uh as we're going to consider now the full power full big battery e-bike um it's using you know the bosch um, drive system and while it's not we're we're really kind of digging into drive systems these days. I think that's going to be the the sort of they're all going to be good, but they're going to have different characteristics that will I think will attract different kinds of riders. Uh, right off the bat, you know, it had been on Bosch systems before, um, but lately had been on Shimano and Specialized mostly. So uh, it's just a completely different feeling motor. Like the numbers look the same. You know, it's got similar torque and similar. Um, you know, similar power numbers, but it doesn't makes a different noise. It, the way it delivers the power, it feels a little bit, feels a little bit friskier off the line, um, but then maybe kind of peters out a little bit more. Now this, to be clear, was the CX line, not the CX race motor. We haven't been on one of those yet. I can't wait to get on one of those. Um, and uh, the, you know, one of the things that we mentioned in the uh, in the flash review, and you mentioned in your first look, was how they went through a different process of designing the frame on the wild, where they realized that having a removable battery is sort of detrimental to frame stiffness. And this is, you know, all Orbea's testing here, and they've looked at all the numbers and decided, right, we don't want to have a replaceable battery because it's at the sacrifice of frame stiffness. So they made the battery non-replaceable. Excuse me, I shouldn't say non-replaceable, but non-replaceable without removing the drive system. Now, when you do, you know, remove the drive system, say you're um, an EWSE mechanic, um, you've done this a few times, you could you got it down to a pretty quick time. It's not a hard job period, but it just takes a little bit of repetition to get those times down. It's like being in a pit crew, I suppose. Anyway, um, so you can replace the battery, but you have to remove the drive system to access it. Now... Right. So the it, idea is that you can replace the battery if the battery gets damaged or has a problem, but it's not meant to be a quick change setup where you can just chuck a new battery in the bike and extend a ride or whatever. Exactly. But what we're also seeing, as you know, David, is that out on, you know, on the actual pointy end of the race circuit, you know, um, the difference between a smaller battery and a bigger battery is going to come down to, you know, how the stages all sort of, you know, lay out because you're going to want to have just like the barely the biggest battery enough just to make it because the, the lighter weight is going to make you faster and it's going to make, you know, the bike more maneuverable. And apparently you're going to be quicker downhill as well. So I know that's a consideration out on the race circuit is you're swapping batteries back and forth, depending on the, uh, the course, the, uh, the Arbea stiffness, I, I think is noticeable. I'm not one that will always say that the stiffness in a frame is is absolutely noticeable, uh, you know, in listening to the marketing speaker companies. But in this case, I'm going to have to say yes. What I'm finding where it is noticeable is in slow, weird off-camber tech sections, right? When the weight of the bike is sort of swinging back and forth and you got a battery in there and you got drive systems, so you have a heavier bike anyhow, that that stiffness is showing itself in the fact that it just doesn't get pushed off a line. I mean, you're making it through some of these really tight, extra weird sections where uh, the weight is sort of penduluming around and it just seems to just stay right on track. I, I think that was the first thing I noticed and impressed me right off the bat with the with the Wild. It it's it, As well as all of that, the suspension has been really good. Um, I would compare it more to the Pivot Shuttle LT suspension versus the Levo because I really like the suspension on the shuttle. 
and I really like the suspension on the Wild. I can't choose a favorite right now. I don't have enough time on the Wild yet, but so far that the pivot is still, you know, it's still the benchmark in that category for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And I reviewed the Rayon, which is something like Orbea's non-electrified version of the Wild. It's kind of a different frame layout and a bit of a different design, but it's their 160 travel enduro bike. So in that sense, at least the equivalent of the Wild and had kind of a lot of similar notes. It's a very stiff, very precise feeling bike in terms of the kind of handling and just, yeah, the frame feels notably stiff on that bike as well. And um, something that I think was particularly true of the Rayon, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are as this relates to the wild, because you're talking about the suspension performance, is that the Rayon is, for a 160 travel enduro bike, very efficient pedaling, kind of stiffer off the top, not the most kind of plush and cushy feeling bike, not amazing small bum sensitivity, but really lively, and then compared with a little bit quicker handling bike for a 160 travel enduro bike and a really stiff precise feeling frame just made the bike feel really agile and really good at not necessarily just bulldozing whatever in its path but more facilitating you being super precise in your riding hitting all of your lines really cleanly and just putting the bike exactly where you wanted it to go and would you say that that kind of carries over to the wild too or is it a bit different because you're talking about the suspension feeling similar to the shuttle LT. And I don't know if that quite matches up. Um, no, I'm not, not, sorry, not, not similar to the LT, but as I, that's, I'm comparing it as of my favorites so far. Like I really like the shuttle LT's suspension performance, but I'm not saying that the, um, that the wild is the same kind of uh, performance. It's different. So sure. I like them both in different ways. Okay. So take us through that. Like how do they differ then? What feel like the, relative strength and weaknesses of both then? The, the small button sensitivity on the pivot was absolutely superb. It um, definitely defined how that the, how that suspension felt. Now, just like you said um, just moments ago, the, the Wild is a little bit more supportive and it's a little bit firmer. And it I think they have taken a lot of that DNA from, um, what was that? Sorry, the Rayon. You know, of course, it's going to be different on e-bike. There's more weight, and you're you're not so attached to sort of pedaling efficiency because you do have, of course, a motor. But it does kind of tend to make you want to pedal harder, and you are. Uh, I was going to say you're definitely feeling like you're you're more input from the rider is necessary to go fast, but you you're, the speed is still really attainable. Okay, Inter- yeah, that does sound like there's a bit of a family resemblance between the wild and the rayon then. So. Right on. You also um, you've also you've also ridden um, the pivot that the sorry that the shuttle is based on and the Firebird, yeah. The Firebird, yeah. Do you find that how does that compare to the to the Rayon? Um, I like them both a lot. They don't remind me of each other that much. Um, yeah, both good bikes that do different things well. I guess is the short version. The pivots more stable and planted bit more plush and a bit better small bump sensitivity though i wouldn't say it's the most super cushy plush planted bike either uh but yeah more so and more stable but not as nimble and sharp handling as the rayon be the shortest version damn that sounds about right so far from what i'm experiencing on the wild more more time on that for sure. I, I the first ride on that was great. I was like, wow, this bike is really good. But it had the same initial impression on the pivot. So, uh, and they are you know definite competitors for each other, and not only just suspension travel, but price and spec and and so forth. So, um, I'm looking forward to more time on the wild. It's definitely a bike that uh, that I just enjoy riding so far. Every time I've been on it, so it's great. Right on. Yeah, well, looking forward to hearing more as you get more time on it. And like we said, flash reviews up on the site. Full review will be coming in a bit here. So looking forward to getting more of that. And I guess to move us away from complete bikes now, we've also been doing a bunch of suspension testing of late, uh, largely on my end. And to kick that off, I have been spending time on the EXT Aria, their new and first Airshock, as well as the revised 
era V 2.1 version of their kind of longer travel single crown fork and very impressed with both uh, to kick it off with the Aria, the shock. Um, it's the first implementation of a dual positive air spring rear shock that we've been on to date, been on a bunch of forks with that kind of layout. Uh, and in short, the idea is that you've got two separate positive air chambers that you inflate separately at quite different pressures. They're stacked on top of each other. And the idea is basically to make a, an air sprung fork more supportive in the mid stroke primarily, because you have the first chamber ramps up more quickly than it does in a normal fork because the volume is much smaller. And then once it increases in pressure by a whole bunch, then the second chamber comes into play and starts moving and effectively makes the spring volume bigger again so that it ramps up more slowly from that point forward. There's kind of a more complete write up in our uh, first look on the era. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want to get a more fleshed out version of that with some visuals. But uh, anyway, I reviewed the original era a few years ago and liked it, but felt like it was a very firmly damped and sprung and super supportive fork that had pretty good small bump sensitivity on like very small chatter and just in terms of kind of maintaining front wheel grip, but then was something that I thought was had the likelihood of feeling kind of just stiff and not very forgiving for a lot of folks who wanted something just a little softer and cushier feeling. And it just felt very high, strung and aggressive basically. And you can make the new revised one that if you want to, but it feels like they've just done a really good job of kind of they've the biggest changes in the V 2.1 version relative to the V two, which I've not written had to do with sort of tweaking the relative volumes of the various air chambers in the spring. And it feels like they've just opened up the tuning window quite a bit. So you can make it super stiff and supportive if you want to, but there's a lot more ability to back that off a little bit and have it be just a bit more soft and supple and forgiving without just totally blowing through the travel and bottoming out and all that kind of stuff. So, um, Feels like a really positive update. Just made the fork more versatile and more adaptable to different riders and different preferences and stuff. And um, the other stuff that was really good about the original, just great performing damper, super supportive, and really impressively smooth sliding and just low friction and that kind of stuff has all carried over and getting along with it great. Um Anyway, so this kind of got a little convoluted here, but then back to the rear shock, the Aria. So it's the era fork that I was just describing has a dual positive air spring. The Aria has one as well. Um, same arrangement. We've tried a bunch of forks with that arrangement, but not shocks previously. And I was a little bit skeptical as to how much of a difference it was really going to make or how much it was going to matter in a rear shock because you've got the very fundamental difference from a fork where you've got a rear suspension linkage to change the leverage curve and you're not doing all of that just with the suspension part itself. But turns out like EXT has basically done a really impressive job of making kind of the most coil like feeling air shock I have tried to date by a pretty big margin. It's not still not a hundred percent as low friction as a good coil kind of unsurprisingly you just got more seals and more sliding stuff so at some point you know there's only so much you can do there but it's really impressively smooth off the top for an air shock the mid-stroke support's incredible it's very tunable with the two different air chambers and you can make it feel pretty different very wide spectrum of options with it and i'm getting along with it super well again there's a First look and flash review on both of those up on the site. You can have a look at those and um, full reviews to come. But so far, very, very impressed with both. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, quick question. How easy is it to adjust these two independent air chambers? Like, do you have to take air out of one to affect the other? Or can you just mess with both of them? Like, let's say I went out for a ride and brought a shock pump to like dial in the suspension. Would it be pretty easy to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's just two separate air valves and um, sort of as far as the procedure goes, it's not really any different than a normal 
single one. You just have to do it twice. Um, so not too big a deal. The one sort of caveat to that is that on the Aria, the rear shock, the secondary chamber runs notably high pressures. And so you have to use a higher pressure shock pump than the typical 300 PSI ones that come with most forks and shocks and are super widely available. So EXT ships it with a uh, pump that goes up to 600 PSI to accommodate that. I'm not going anywhere near that high. I'm running about 390 PSI in the ramp up chamber on it, which is still a ton. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's still a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of pressure. I've had a hose blow on a shock yeah. pump at 500 PSI. This is doing an IFP fill and that sounded like a shotgun going off. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, that sounds like not a good time. The EXT 600 PSI shock pump does have a braided stainless steel hose, perhaps for that reason. Um, so good on them there. The only thing that's a little bit annoying about it, apart from it being just a different shock pump, is that it is super long, I guess, to deliver a sort of reasonable amount of air volume at, with like a really small piston that can handle the super high pressure. And so it's sort of a pain to carry on a ride just because it is physically so big, gotcha. but, but easier than, you know, going out there with a bunch of volume spacers and taking your bike apart every time you want to change the progressivity <laughs> of your suspension. And that that's where I like, that's kind of what I was wondering. It's like, you know, you go out for a ride and, and you can't really, get your suspension dialed in by knobs and whatnot. And you have to go back home and take it apart and, you know, mess with the tokens and whatnot. It sounds like that's definitely an easier way to get your suspension feeling dialed. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, you do have to sort of, you've got a second air pressure to maintain as it were, tile off it from time to time, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it's definitely less involved than pulling a shock apart to, you know, take it off the bike, deflate it, open up the air can, swap spacers, whatever. So I would say overall easier, just a little bit of yeah. a different flavor of effort, but super impressed with it. And uh, yeah, more to come on that in a bit. But uh, and then I guess to sort of keep the ball rolling here, we've also been spending much time on the Olin's TTX one and TTX two air shocks. And I've been comparing both on the same bike. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh well, Simon, you've been riding the TTX one on the Comensal Tempo that we talked about up top. So, um, kick it to you first. Any particular thoughts on that one? How's that getting along? I've been I've been getting along with it. Well, um, we chatted a little bit ago about I was sort of dialing in the settings on it a little bit. Um, I think I'm getting there now. It's um, it's not a, a shock I've spent a ton of time on, except for now on the on the Tempo. I find it to be. Um, to be fairly well um, damped on the compression side, it's got plenty. It's plenty firm, okay, and it's um, gives a nice stable platform. But I do think it's um, you know I've got I'm running a little bit lower sag than what's um, um, specified from Olin's, but I'm still going through that travel fairly easy as it stands now. So that's sort of indicating a, a travel. Vo- sorry, a a volume reducer is necessary on this one. And I didn't actually have any on hand. It didn't come with any. So I've got some coming and we'll see how that goes from there. Uh, and where I'm seeing that is, you know, when you're doing these big ledge up moves, we have plenty of them here where you're really committing to it. And it's um, a massive sort of weight shift towards the back wheel. And I'm going through the travel fast enough where it's actually slowing the momentum to go back up on the ledge. And that's how I noticed it. So uh, I think a little bit more fiddling there. Everywhere else, I'm really, I'm really liking it. I like the um, the sensitivity, um, and I like the support. And um, it is using all of its travel regularly. That's what I expect out of 125. But I think we need to tone that down a little bit and use a little bit less on the top. That all seems pretty consistent with my experience on it, and particularly the note about that being just a fairly firmly damped shock in compression especially um i've been riding both the ttx1 and ttx2 which use the same damper but with different air cans the ttx1 is kind of a smaller lower volume more compact shock with both a smaller positive and negative chamber and then the ttx2 is the bigger version that's meant to be a bit more linear in its spring performance and that for sure checks out uh I've been riding both on a Gorilla Gravity trail pistol, um, 
with them long shocked up to 130 rear travel on that bike, which Gorilla Gravity condones. It's officially 120 stock, but if you bump the stroke up, you can get 130 out of it. Fine. Um, and yeah, like you said, uh, the firm compression damping, really supportive and composed, not the most plush and cushy kind of ride, but for folks who especially you find a lot of the sort of shorter travel, smaller shocks that you get on shorter travel bikes to be kind of lacking in compression damping, especially higher speed compression. They're really compelling options and um, differences between the two are kind of what you'd expect given the different air cans. The TTX two is a little bit smoother off the top and a little bit more plush feeling a little bit better mid-stroke support uh, and definitely less progressive overall, which is 100% how Owens talks about them. Um, but the interesting thing is that I've actually found myself liking the TTX-1 better on that trail pistol, largely because it's a little firmer off the top and just makes the bike feel more lively. And it's a 130 travel bike because I'm configuring it. It's never going to be a super stable plush bulldozer of a bike you know and i'm sort of just finding that that extra bit of support very early in the travel and a little bit of liveliness you get from it just feels like a good match to the character of the bike and i'm quite confident that on a longer travel enduro bike or something the dtx2 would be the more appropriate fit there for my preferences but on the shorter travel configuration the ttx1 actually is kind of the one that I'm getting along with better. Um, we'll actually have the full review of that up later this week as of when we're recording this. So um, should be up on time you're hearing the episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Or rather go check it out. It'll be live by the time you're hearing this. So um, more on those to come. And well, I guess Dylan, you'll get some time on that too on the tempo coming up shortly here. So perhaps an update with your thoughts will be forthcoming as well i haven't used another i haven't used another shock on the tempo uh, but as it stands right now that ttx1 is a really good match for the tempo and the personality of the bike it, it's a great match i think you're gonna really like it uh, i think it does it should be noted you know it is in the same the architecture of the shock is is um similar to a, um, a fox float x2 in regards to you know air can services is a little bit more time consuming or sorry a lot more time consuming so well, not entirely because you you do have to take the uh, rear eyelet off, but on the Owens, it doesn't require taking apart the damper. So, uh, which is the case on the Flodex too. Um, so it's another step, but it, you're you're right; it's not as involved. Doesn't require a full damper bleed every time, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. just a set of shaft clamps to unthread the rear eyelet. But basically, the damper shaft is solid, and there's no rebound adjuster or any oil flow running through the damper so you can spin that rear eyelet off and not actually get into the guts of the damper um so yeah it's a it's an extra step but it's not a, a particularly onerous one um so it's something but um and we talk a bunch more about that in the full review so there's uh some coverage there that you'll be able to check out by the time you're here in this episode and then I guess the last thing that I wanted to touch on suspension wise and to bring the episode home here is that I've also started spending time on the new Manitou Matic, their 110 to 150 travel, 34 millimeter stanchion kind of trail bike fork. Um, and I have been a really big fan of the Mezer, their bigger enduro fork for quite a while now. And on paper, the Matic Pro sort of looks like a mini Mezer Pro. It's got sort of same spring design, again, with one of the dual positive air spring arrangements that we were talking about before with the ext it's got the same basic damper design with separately adjustable high and low speed compression plus rebound and i've sort of found that to be they're a little bit more different than i might have expected given all of that i mean the matic is of course about 300 grams lighter and correspondingly definitely not as stiff and burly as the Mezer, as to be expected but they, despite their sort of similarities in internal design, they actually feel more notably different than you might think. Uh, the kind of highlights being that the Matic is definitely 
less firmly damped than the Mezzer, especially in compression. And it actually feels like it's got a little bit better small bump sensitivity, but not quite as exceptional mid-stroke support and bottom-out resistance. And um, I think for a little bit lighter duty, lighter, shorter travel fork, it's actually kind of a sensible set of decisions that they've made. It um, doesn't feel as tuned towards riding super aggressively and smashing things really hard, but feels more supple and more plush and so on when you're going a little slower and taking things a little easier. And it's uh, nicely in keeping with what they're doing with it. So still fiddling with settings and getting it all dialed in, but um, feels like a really good kind of mid-travel all-rounder trail bike fork at this point. And um, particularly compared to, say, a Fox 34, it... A, the chassis feels a little bit stiffer on the Matic, and B, well, I know I just said that it doesn't feel as firmly damped as the Mezzer. It does feel like it is at least possible to make the damping on the Matic a bit firmer than that of the Fox, which, uh, particularly in the Grip 2 version of that, which just doesn't have a ton of compression damping, even when you kind of clamp things down a bit. The adjustment range on the Matic is really wide actually in terms of compression and so you can firm it up quite a bit though if you're someone who prefers a little bit lighter damping you can open it up pretty effectively as well which was sort of one of our hesitations with the measure as far as recommending it to a huge number of people go the lighter end of the damping range on that fork is still kind of firm though uh, manitou does say that they have revised the damper tunes on that a little bit since i reviewed it so it's possible that that is slightly dated information at this point i haven't been on one of the newer ones yet but certainly the matic isn't as dedicatedly firmly damped as the Mezzer is which for a bunch of people is going to be a good thing and i'm real impressed so far we'll have a flash review of that up soon and a full review in a bit it only showed up uh about a week ago as when we're recording this so i don't have a ton of time on it yet but early impressions are good and uh more to come on that soon so I think our work here is done. So any final parting thoughts for us or shall we get back to it? I think we're good. Yeah. Excited to get on the tempo and the subsequently the, the TTX and, and ride in BV for the first time this weekend. I haven't, haven't done that yet. Not sure if that makes me any less of a Coloradan, but I'm excited for it. Like not just this season, but ever, ever. I've never ridden in, in BV. I've ridden in Salida a little bit, but never BV. Wow. Somehow, despite not living there, I've got you beat. So it's good to say like David's in Seattle and he's he's uh, written here. Just looking forward to hearing more about your thoughts on the uh, tempo, Dylan and Simon, everything you got going and lots more to come there. So great talking with you two as always. And uh, we'll do it again soon. See ya. That sounds good. See you guys. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Dylan and Simon for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be back again with you next week. Bye, everybody.